Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber Internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Integrity First Insurance, provider of Erie Insurance for all your auto, home, life, and business insurance needs. More information at 812-269-8897 or integrityfirstinsuranceservices.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org. Welcome to Noon Edition on WFIU. I'm your host, Bob Salzberg, along with co-host Sarah Whitmire, the News Bureau Chief of WFIU and WTIU. Today we're talking about Black history and culture and contemporary issues as well in Monroe County and Indiana. We have four guests joining us uh, on our Zoom call today. Elizabeth Mitchell is Monroe County historian and documentarian. Gloria Howell is director of the IU Neil Marshall Black Culture Center. Jacoby Williams is the chair of the IU Department of African American and African Diaspora Studies and an associate professor of history. And Ramatu Sumara is an I, the IU NAACP president and an Hamilt- a Hamilton Luger School undergraduate student. If you have questions or comments, you can send them to us by email, news at indianapublicmedia.org, or you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. Dr. Williams, I wanted to start with you today. Um, I know that you can give us, uh, and I wish you would, give us a little background on Black History Month, but then I, I would like for you to follow up on whether you think this year feels a little bit different because of all the debate about how Black history should be taught. Well, yes, there's obvious differences because of all the political polarization that's taking place in the state legislature at school boards uh, regarding uh, the fear of critical race theory and um, SEL learning and things of that nature. Um, But uh, the due diligence of scholars like myself, teachers and administrators uh, continue to value Black History Month and all of its resources, its celebrations and success. Uh, Myself, uh, to speak just anecdotally about my own contributions I'm currently I'm trying to take a break now uh, between speaking engagements. I visited over 19 elementary, middle schools, and four high schools it's in the last two to three weeks, giving Black History Month presentations, despite the, some of the uh, controversies that some on the right and others have about teaching the contributions of African-Americans as a problem in schools today. I'd like to, to open this up this particular question open up to the the rest of you. Uh, Liz Mitchell, I know that you've been, you know, you're a a historian here in Monroe County. You know more than anybody else about the about the history of Monroe County and Blacks in Monroe County. And um, does this does this year feel different to you? Yes, it does. I don't understand the censorship or trying to implement censorship, Uh, spending a lot of money to try to silence the truth where you could put those funds to good use somewhere else. Everybody has a dark past, even as a nation and as individuals, we can all make claims that we've had moments that we wish we could do a do-over. So to me, it's ridiculous to uh, have these bills in the house and to spend time and money trying to um, to cover up the truth on things. You just simply tell the truth and, and let that lie. Well, it's very disturbing. It's very disturbing to me. All right. Thank you. Um, Gloria Howell is the uh, director of the Neil Marshall Center. So when you uh, are dealing with and talking to students, um, does it again? Does this month feel different to you than in past years? 
Um, to some extent, yes, but also to some extent, no. And I say that because um, I tell I tell students and I tell anybody who knows anything about the Black Culture Center or who wonders about what we do, it's Black History Month 365 where I work. And, um, you know, so despite what's happening um, with, with legislation and what, you know, what things are being debated um, within our, our government systems, that doesn't impact our, um, our zeal when it comes to celebrating Black history. Um, our students are making history. You know, they're, they're very involved. And one of them is on the call today, um, Rama, who I have the pleasure of advising with the NAACP. So, um, and I was just having this conversation with someone that, you know, while our history is, is full of, of these stories of resilience and, and we honor and acknowledge those, but, um, you know, there, there's a lot of Black joy in our story as well. And for our students in particular, you see them celebrating that on campus throughout the month and, and even some of the things that we're doing in the Black Culture Center. So, um, you know, while we're having these debates and, and we're encouraging students to be educated on what's happening and and to do um, what they can to, in the, in the spirit of activism, which, which our people have done since the beginning, um, it still doesn't change the fact that we, we're going to celebrate our people and we're going to celebrate who we are. So um, I guess just for that question, that would definitely be like a yes and no for me. Okay, gotcha. Um, Rama, I want to bring you on now. Could you sort of summarize, you know, your experience as a Black student here on campus? I know that's a very big, broad question, but if you could just give us, um, you know, a, a little bit, I guess a short answer if you can on, um, you know, summarizing that experience and, and um, you know, the role of, of uh, the Neil Marshall Center and other Black students and in, in helping make that experience a rich one. Yeah, um, I can definitely try. You know, it's been a long three and a half years, but I can give you a quick, short um, summary. So as a Black student on campus, you know, first coming, before coming to IU, I already had to prepare myself mentally knowing that I was going to be um, a minority, just like, you know, I am everywhere else in this country. But um, I think I was able to um, access certain resources as a Black student to be able to surround myself with others that were like me, to be able to, to have spaces that were comfortable. So for example, my freshman year, I lived um, on Atkins, which is the African-American living learning community named after Thomas I. Atkins. Um, and I was surrounded by mainly Black students. So I was able to create a community in that sense. I was required to take some classes in the triple ADS department, which opened my eyes to a lot of, of different things that I didn't know before. It forced me to unlearn a lot. Um, I also got really involved with the the IU NAACP, the African Student Association, the Black Student Union. So there were a lot of spaces that I could go to 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 escape the microaggressions from my my mainly white classes to escape, you know, just the feeling of feeling different, you know. So so I think overall my black experience has been um, enhanced because of those spaces that were provided by um, places like the Neil Marshall Black Culture Center and the different organizations that I was a part of. Could you follow up just a, a bit I, and just give us a sense uh, of the microaggressions that you experienced? Um, yeah, so uh, a lot of people who don't know me and, you know, you can't really see me through the radio, um, but I am, I am Black, I am a woman, and I am a Muslim, but not only that, I am a visible Muslim, so I wear the hijab, um, so my, you know, my microaggressions, there was never an opportunity for me to pinpoint which part of my identity was being you know, um, discriminated against. Um, but, you know, experiencing things like being in classes and, and group projects and people not giving me an opportunity to talk or, um, you know, there are a lot of cases where I would say something and um, someone else would repeat what I just said exactly how I said it. And that person often was a white male and would be heard. Um, there was one time I was in a, having a conversation with um, a, a 
classmate and um, he had never heard me talk before. And so when he heard me speaking, he, his response was, oh, wow, like, I didn't know that you spoke such good English. And so I was like, what does that mean? And he was like, oh, you know, I just thought, um, I just thought, and he couldn't, he couldn't finish his sentence. So I was like, okay, yeah, that's probably a good idea. Stop right there before you dig yourself in a hole. Um, you know, I've experienced a lot of, just a lot of different, I, I can't give you a, everything that I've experienced, but those are just a few examples of, of just how I've felt ignored, um, you know, looked down upon, sometimes thought of as not intelligent because of my identity or my scarf. Like I've had people ask me if I was forced to wear my scarf um or did I convert to Islam um and and am I a part of the nation of Islam and am I anti-white you know I've had a lot of people say things or or look at me differently because and I and I don't know if that's because of my scarf or I don't know if that's because of my race I appreciate I appreciate your honesty on that I think it's important for people to to hear stories like that Sarah yeah I think that's really interesting Dr. Williams if if you could sort of almost follow up on that because I'm just as a white person, how do you have these conversations? Um, you know, being mindful of like Ramatu said, like digging yourself a hole. How how do you have honest conversations about about race and be sensitive? Well, first we have to make sure there's an error of civility. So it depends on where and what context and what spaces we're having a conversation. So if we just take some of the examples given already, particularly in the classroom and the way in which I conduct the classroom is forcing students um, to, I shouldn't say force, but requiring students to um, take a vow of civility, because I believe the classroom is the only place we have in our society. We can have these open, honest, informed conversations about what some believe to be controversial issues dealing with race and politics and few with all these uh, auspices of emotion. And so in those contexts, in those spaces, uh, the folks are informed by the material, informed by the readings, but we have to have an era of civility. Because the students and society, particularly in the classroom, students are already having those conversations, but they're doing so in their divided silos. African-American students are here, Latino students there, LBGQ students are in another corner, but they don't actually come together and have these open, honest conversations and debates um, and have informed conversations about that. So the classroom provides the space to do that. So I'm often um, the one facilitating such conversations uh, in those spaces um, to deal with some of these, what I believe, critical and very important issues, because what we do in Black studies and Africana studies is not just uh, explore the past, but um, use methodologies that are applicable. So once we learn and have these, these open, honest conversations about experiences and the history in the past and contributions and struggles and so forth, but there are some methodologies and application that can be used because most of the students in these courses uh, are one of two things. They are either uninformed or two, they want to return to their communities to create change, to affect um, the, the ways in which their education can change the conditions and the experiences they've had in the past in their own communities. And so we make sure that the material that we, that we use, the learning outcomes that we produce um, in our classrooms have those kind of uh, transformative experiences, which has already been articulated here by uh, one of our stellar students. Uh, and I have to use that word stellar because our department, African-American African Diaspora Studies, is the only one in the nation that has an Afrocentric living learning community attached to it for this reason, because we understand that students are coming in as freshmen as a, at a predominantly white institution like IU with 52,000 students with less than 4% African-American, that they're going to face some of these microaggressions. They're going to deal with some of these experiences. So we want to make sure that we are able to mold them from freshmen on um, how to deal with some of these conditions that they're actually going to face in the real world by having lived experiences right here on campus and in some of those classrooms. And so uh, it's remarkable to see the ways in which 
those students have evolved politically and become active and and strong willed and, and confident and able to take those resources they, and, and education that we learn from IU and apply them, not just in the real world, but currently here you know, in, the, in the current context in this conversations and even in the, the titles they hold as, as office holders in NAACP and others. So you can see the result of some of these controversial with something controversial, but very necessary conversations and debates and experiences that we, we have in our classrooms. And I try to apply that in my lectures as well. I take students on, on trips with me. I'm very active in various activist circles uh, where students are active in those places as well. And then in classes like mine, I'm being long-winded here, I end in a second. I teach what some on the right may be thinking are critical race theory classes. Yes, we do do that in graduate classes. And some of those students that I have are some of the most right-wing um, conservative students I've ever experienced. But after having that 15-week course actually change their ideas. Uh, they become critical thinkers and think for themselves and realize that much of their positions are hegemonic discourses of their community that they have never challenged before. They don't know why they believe what they believe. And so what we foster in our courses are critical thinking, force you to choose for yourself, make up your own mind why you have certain political beliefs. And many of those students end up joining our causes. Um, and so those on the right might call that indoctrination. We call that in, in higher ed, critical thinking, fostering learning outcomes, which is the point of any higher ed institution to leave uh, uh, with not just degree, but to leave more enlightened. I want to follow up on some of the things you said um, with Gloria Howell, because you're involved with a lot of the programs and inclusion and improving campus diversity here at IU. Um, Dr. Williams, you know, mentioned some places where this is happening. Can you give us more of a sense of other programs that you think of are really successful in furthering the inclusion and, and the diversity here at the, at Indiana University. Yeah, I, I think it's important to note, and this kind of connects with, with um, what Jacoby was, was sharing. And that is, um, you know, students have to feel a sense of, a sense of belonging um, at, at the university. And, and that's where spaces like the, the Black Culture Center um, and my colleagues in the other centers, uh, IU is in, in some ways um, rare in that we have five cultural centers on campus. Um, the Neil Marshall, La Casa, the LGBTQ plus center, um, First Nations Educational Cultural Center and the Asian Culture Center. And these spaces um, are, were, they were created one through student activism and two, um, they have continued for the No Marshall, it's been over 50 years in providing um, a sense of belonging and, and academic, social, um, personal support to students. So, um, and I think what has to be, we have to take it a step further than just making the campus diverse. Um, and it, it's because there's a lot of, there's a lot of diversity is great. And it's, it's good to have, you know, a good critical mass, if you will, of black students or black folks, or, or you can insert any other group in there. But if they don't feel like they have a sense of belonging and if they, they aren't benefiting from some of the practices that are happening on campus, then all of that is really for naught, right? So, um, so what we do in, in the Black Culture Center and to um, like Rama shared about the Atkins Living Learning, Learning Center, the ADS department, all of those are, are really, really um, integral programs and academic units that um, really serve students well and giving them those opportunities and making sure that they're they're invested in learning about their culture. Um, the Black Culture Center does that in terms of the programs that we have, like the Leader, New Marshall Leadership Academy, um, which is a program for freshmen. This year, we open it up to sophomores, um, but it's a way to get them acclimated to campus while also helping them to develop um, leadership skills, but doing that from a very cultural perspective, recognizing that it's different to be a Black leader at a PWI for a Black student um, than it is for a white student or really any other student. Um, so we have that program. We also have a, a Black President's Cabinet, which is comprised of Black students who are presidents, and Rama is a part of that as well, um, presidents of Black student orgs or orgs that serve Black student um, serve organizations that have Black students in them. So um, I think there's, there's some spaces that are 
that were created as such. Um, students have been a big part in creating those spaces, um, which is why I love working with students because they obviously we provide them with guidance and support, but they have these really amazing ideas on how they want their experience to be. And then they will take it and run with it. And they go and create um, create these spaces. And Rama and other students have been a part of that. And it's just been a joy to witness um, how they create those spaces so that they feel um, more so included and also understanding the fact that there's diversity within their Blackness, right? So Rama just mentioned the identities that she holds dear. Um, you know, and so we take into account that our students are not just Black right? They're Black and, and there's a lot of ands that are involved in that. So how are we supporting students? Um, and that goes way, way beyond just recognizing that they're diverse, but also making sure that we're creating spaces where um, that diversity is valued, where it's recognized, um, and, and where it's celebrated. So we're talking about uh, Black History Month and issues of Black culture today on Noon Edition. We have Four guests with us, Elizabeth Mitchell, Monroe County historian and documentarian, Gloria Howell, the director of the IU Neil Marshall Black Culture Center, Jacoby Williams, who's the chair of the IU Department of African-American, African Diaspora Studies, and an associate professor of history, and Rama Sumara, who is the IU NAACP president and the Hamilton Luger School undergraduate student. So if you have questions or comments for us, you can send them to news at indianapublicmedia.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. I wanted to bring Elizabeth Mitchell back in because I know that um, you know you have have a great knowledge of the history of of the greater Bloomington community and and you know not just where IU fits into it, but the greater Bloomington community. I know you were instrumental in a in a, a, an exhibit at the Monroe County Public Library, uh, or no, I'm sorry, at the History Center, just a couple of years ago, about uh, you know the history of, of blacks in Bloomington. You know, what have we gotten wrong all these years, and and how do we correct you know maybe the one-sided history of our community and of other communities that uh, we've been uh, we've been dealt over the years. Well, one thing um, that is happening in all of the cities across America is um, what's labeled gentrification. And so neighborhoods are changing. Once was once, uh, Black communities are, are now changing. And so the history is gone, long forgotten. It happened in Indianapolis on the west side of Indianapolis. IUPUI swallowed up the Black community. Uh, that history is gone except for the Madam Walker building. But the first black YMCA in America was torn down. A lot of the homes were torn down. And at that time, they were told they were being paid market value, which was the little of nothing. And then you had to go find other homes to live in and you didn't have enough money to sustain that. um, The Bloomington community here, the black community is changing And so what I've been trying to do in my years here is to save that history through stage plays and recording oral histories and to bring attention to those sites that brought comfort to African-Americans when they came here to Bloomington, one being the Pollard Lodge, which we called the Hole. That was recently listed on the endangered list, more so to save it and bring attention to it. Uh, especially to that community, which is rapidly changing. And to me, it's just important not to forget that it took all of us to make the communities what they are, good, bad, or indifferent. It took all of us to do that. And so we can't let um, anyone stifle our voices and to forget those histories because African-Americans helped to make this community what it is. We've been here since it started. The first Blacks came in 1818. Uh, hopefully, most people know that Monroe County was established on April the 10th in 1818. And at that time, there were three Blacks here. They were slaves brought up from Kentucky. And later, 
there were two men listed as colored who bought lots at the public land sale here. And by 1821, <clears throat> excuse me, we had 25 persons of color living in Monroe County compared to almost 2,000 whites. And so we had the Underground Railroad through here. Not only were there whites saving blacks, but there were plenty of black underground railroad conductors that never get recognized. As well as there were black slave hunters here, uh, not black slave hunters, but slave hunters who made a lot of money after capturing uh, what they considered escaped slaves. You might not have been escaped. You might have been free, but they, they take them back. And that's how some of the slave hunters here earned a lot of money and became wealthy doing that. So uh, things are slowly changing and we had to be cognizant of that and recognize that and not to forget the history of the minorities in this county. Elizabeth, can you talk a little bit more about the Underground Railroad stops in Monroe County, where those are and um, the role of the Underground Railroad? Sure. Uh, South Rogers was the main road into Bloomington. And on the southeast part of Rogers, down where, uh, if you're familiar with Bloomington, the Switchyard Park, down in that area, there was a farmer by the name of Sam Gordon who had a farm there. Uh, His house was a stop on the Underground Railroad across from him uh, where uh, now is a um, electrical plant across from the warehouse on Rogers. That's where a black woman and her sister, Auntie Myers and her sister lived. They were major conductors on the Underground Railroad and they brought slaves up from Salem. There was a black man black man named William Hawkins that brought slaves up who made it to Salem and he brought them to Bloomington and handed them over to Nolly Baker, who was a barber here. Nolly then was able to get them up through Martinsville, Indiana. Everybody talks about the fear of Martinsville, but at one time that was part of the Underground Railroad through there. They had the largest, the third largest black community in the state of Indiana. And from there, you went up through Mooresville. That was one way. Another way was to go out through Unionville. Uh, They took a slave named Tony out through Unionville and up to the Levi Coffin House located in Fountain City. Bloomington played a major part in the Underground Railroad because of the Covenators who came here. Um, Bloomington basically was about 50-50 on the slavery issue. So it it wasn't all that great, but we have to acknowledge that there were Black people saving Black people and those narratives never get told. All right. I want to follow up with, um, I guess, Dr. Williams and and also, well, all, all three of you about the relationship between you know, Bloomington and Bloomington's history uh, with the, the university and the, the teaching of black history. How, how much can you take advantage of, you know, having, you know, something, somebody like Liz Mitchell in town, but also just uh, the various places like the, the Banneker Center or other, other um, locations in the community to help teach black history? Well, what, what we do is, well, I shouldn't say we is like we're only ones doing this, but most of us on campus who value um, our connections to the community is connect the campus and our students to those those locations. Mm-hmm. So in triple ADS or Africana studies as a discipline, uh, what we believe in is the in our methodology in our discipline is reciprocity, meaning the work that we do as scholars um, must impact and influence communities in which we study. Therefore, the time that we spend in those communities can't just result in books that we write for the ivory tower. It must also, the, the work that we spend in those communities result in the kind of scholarship we produce. So there should be some reciprocity there. And one way of doing that is also um, incorporating our students in those spaces as well, as our students are required to our undergraduate and graduate students are required to spend time in the communities so that we have those connections. We as a discipline, as a department only exist 
because of the activism uh, in the in 70, 50 years ago, as we celebrate our 50th anniversary as one of the oldest departments in the nation this year. Um, it was born out of activism, and that was activism from the community and from folks on campus. It was a combination of the two. So we hold dear the connections to folks like Elizabeth and others in the community who are doing the kinds of uh, community work that we all do as well. So not everyone uh, has a PhD, but that, but everyone still has valuable information and scholarship. So on the National Council of Black Studies, one of the oldest Black Studies conferences in the world, uh, we have scholars there as well, but we also have community people who have equal archives who, don't, who are not traditional academics, but we value their scholarship and we value their creativity and their community connections just as much as we value the books and journals that we publish. So our students spend much time in those communities and maybe Glory and others who are way more immersed um, in the history and those and those other resources than I am could speak more about that. Gloria? Yeah, I think I think we definitely try to connect um, bridge town and gown gaps, if you will. That's something that I'm very passionate about at the center in terms of helping helping students to know one that um, even if whether it's two years you know as a master's student or five seven years as a doc student or you know four five six years as an undergraduate student hopefully no more than four or five um, that you know you're while you're here you are a citizen of the Bloomington community it doesn't matter if you came from Carmel or if you came from Fishers or DC or Mississippi like myself you are a a a citizen of this community so as a citizen you you should want to know about the place that you are residing even if it's temporary and so to that end I think that we've done um we've kind of kind of work to to make sure that students know history and that they're participating in the community. Um, for instance, like a lot of the um, a lot of the students, they they're doing service in the community. You know, they're reading at Fairview Elementary. They're um, volunteering at the Banneker Center. They're, you know, we have a homework help program um, at Bethel AME Church that um, that I started working on as a coordinator as a graduate student myself. Um, and another doctoral student. So this, you know, you have people that have one foot on the campus and one foot, one foot in the community, and it's possible to do both and and to get immersed in the history of the community. Um, kind of on an institutional level, like the the No Marshall, um, we're very intentional, like during Black History Month, for example, in connecting with the the commute the the Black community in the city of Bloomington. So, for example. Um, this Black History Month, our theme has centered on the Black church because we know that the Black church as an institution has historically, um, you know, been a, a, a very important piece to our narrative as, as Black folks, particularly in the United States. Um, and so our, our celebration for the month has been, um, you know, centered on the Black church, um, even interrogating in some degrees and challenging uh, the Black church, but, but more so um, honoring the fact that the Black church not only was a place of worship, but for a lot of Black people, it was where they were educated because they couldn't go anywhere else. And so um, during our celebration, we it would be very difficult to have a Black History Month celebration themed on the Black church at IU without talking about Black churches in Bloomington, like Second Baptist and Bethel AME. And so we invited um, those churches to, to participate in our Black History Month kickoff, which was a worship celebration that was hybrid. Um, we've been highlighting the churches. I was just at um, Lighthouse Community Church last week, um, greeting the, their congregation on behalf of the No Marshall. Um, we've had, you know, events where we've partnered with community folks. Um, I have a very close relationship with Shatoya Moss, who is um, the Safe and Civil City Director for the City of Bloomington. We usually um, plan our events a lot together for Black History Month. Last last year, we hosted for the first time a joint kickoff celebration. Um, because I've never understood why there were two Black History Month kickoffs in one city anyway. Um, so we decided that we would we would host um, the last one in 2021 together. And it's amazing to see, you know, the students find out different things about 
the city of Bloomington, you know, they're finding out about the Bridgewaters family, the Eagleson family, um, a lot of the things that Mrs. Mitchell has 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 researched and, and has been a storyteller for. These students are finding out for the first time, you know, when they come to IU and they're getting involved in student orgs like NAACP or they're taking classes in the AAADS department. Um, and so we try to be intentional with making those connections for students so that then they're sustaining those connections by, you know, doing service at these, these spaces, um, but also like just, just visiting the churches even, or um, whatever the case may be, we, we try to build those connections because I tell anybody that the Neil Marshall would not be the Neil Marshall without Black folks in the city of Bloomington um, who helped to develop and sustain um, our center. So that's very important. Okay, thank you. Sarah? I thought Sarah had a follow-up. Um, I wanted to to ask uh, Rama uh, again to just sort of talk about, you know, you talked about um, about the different issues, the microaggressions that you had. I just uh, recently showed a video in a class that I teach about the danger of the single story, which is about, you know, looking at somebody and, and sort of making up your mind about that person. And, you know, when you think about, the uh you know your experience here at iu you've had to overcome some of those things but have you uh, you know what what have you learned about yourself and about others in you know in your time here and you know in your um you know in this different i i guess different environment that you've been in um i think something that that i have learned especially since like you talked about you know, making assumptions about someone before getting to know them is always a problem. And I think that's definitely something that I've I've learned is um, while connecting with so many different Black students is that the Black experience isn't a single experience. You know, I've met people from from all over the country, some people from, you know, different parts of the world that um, although we share some similar Black experiences, like we're very different. And I think that, you know, this experience, just being a, a minority student at IU, has really forced me to, to really think about my intersectionality and just how I fit into the world and what contributions I can make. Um, so I am a first generation American. And in the past, I used to, I used to think that I, I although I, I, I felt like I was an ally, um, to a lot of the African Americans in the country, um, I sometimes I felt like I wasn't able to participate, you know, in, in whether that was in protests or um, in um, even Black History Month sometimes. But but coming here and meeting so many different people, I learned that that's not a way to look at it. That you know, even though my 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 ancestors weren't brought here, forced here through slavery. Um, we still have experienced different things and other people don't look at me and think, oh, maybe she's not from here. You know, when, regardless, when other people look at me, they just look at me as as black. And so on that level, like I definitely um, relate with with a lot of people. And so I think that's just that's one of the most important things that I've learned is that the black experience is not is not one experience and there's always something to learn. All right. Um, Sarah, I, I think we had a, uh, our producer actually sent a note that, that suggested we go into one topic. Um, yeah, Elizabeth, maybe you can chime in about this, but the question was just about Eagleson Avenue. And I know that's something our newsroom has reported on quite a bit, just the renaming of Jordan Avenue. Can you talk a little about the Eagleson family and the renaming of that street, Elizabeth? Yeah, sure. I was uh, on that uh, committee, renaming Jordan committee, and also on the uh, uh, dedication committee for that. We had decided that it was time to recognize African Americans in the community that was associated with the community and IU. The community, the Black community of Bloomington, has always embraced the Black students at IU. At one time, as you know, Black students were not allowed to stay on campus, and they stayed in homes, individual homes here, at various homes. 
people recognize the Mays house, but there were other homes that students stayed in. So when they decided that Jordan need to be renamed, the committee decided that it would be, we would submit a recommendation to the mayor and the officials at IU, two names of African-Americans, one woman, Maddie Jacobs Fuller, who uh, virtually single-handedly built Bethel AME, and also the Eagleson family, which would represent the Eaglesons and the Bridgewater family, who have got one degree after another at IU and were um, both both of those families, they, they're reunited through marriage, that uh, their contributions should be recognized. So in the end, it was decided that Eagleson would, um, would fit the need for the city and also IU. And that's how that came about. And deservedly so. Uh, that family had a lot of hardships at IU. Um, IU was no better than being in Mississippi, uh, very racist. And so, uh, if nothing else, um, apology uh, would be made through this action because of what they had, what had been done to the Eaglesons family. Uh, they persevered, uh, were resilient, and quite a few of the members went to IU and got degrees. So it's just to honor the accomplishments of that. We've got several other people that had gone to IU and were from this community that need to be deserved and recognized. And that has not happened yet. One is Dr. Ezra Alexander, who had to sit in the hallway to get his degree. So IU and Bloomington still have a lot of work to do to recognize the contributions of African-Americans in this community. And they need to do it at speed. We, we, we tired of waiting. So those people, Maddie needs to be recognized. Dr. Ezra needs to be recognized. And I'm sure I can come up with a quite a long list of others who've made significant contributions to IU as well as this community and the state of Indiana for that matter. I, yeah, I, I know you can. And I think a lot of them were recognized. I mean, you did include a lot of them in, in the exhibit that was at the History Center. And I know I learned a lot from that. Dr. Williams, I'd like to return to this issue of, you know, we're, we're in Black History Month this week, and it just seems like it is such, um, and then I, I shouldn't, I won't use the word unusual, but it's just different from the last few years because of what's going on in the state legislature here and in other places. And I, I would just like to get your take on, you know, how do we get back to this place where we're even debating whether we should be talking about certain parts of the history of our country when it comes to, you know, racial issues? Well, these are not new phenomenons, unfortunately. So as a historian, I, to be quite frank about it, uh, history ebbs and flows. And some of the exact same rhetoric, the exact same language, the exact same words, the exact same sentiments are some of the same sentiment used by segregationists over 50 years ago to stop integration in schools, to stop the kinds of um, educational uh, inclusion and diversity issues that we're dealing with that we, we want to that we actually value today. Uh, you take it back 50 years prior to that to the turn of the century when we had what we call the Negro problem. Uh, this is some of the same debates that Du Bois and Booker T were dealing with, with those, quite frankly, white supremacists and segregationists. And I know those on the right hate to be called racist. They hate to be called um, um, the, all these various forms of racial language that identifies them as white supremacists. But I, I'm very quick to point a mirror to them. As, and I'm saying this as someone who spent too many times here in Indianapolis and Carmel uh, and Atlanta and some, and some various places in the, around the South, not to name all these places, at the school board meetings, having debates with these parents and others uh, who use the same language and the same, the same rhetoric as these white supremacist racist segregationists. So if that's not what your intention is, 
You shouldn't be using it. But these are the same arguments that are put forward. These are not new. So you can find them against the Brown v. Board education decision using the same language, the same rhetoric, um, the same positions. Uh, we could find them um, in the 60s as African-American students are asking for African-American studies to be included uh, in their curriculum. And we, when we talk about the student movement. We often forget that there's a movement in the high schools, too, in that period. And they sit resistance from various school boards, officials in places like Chicago, for example, where uh, integration of schools were resisted. And you had the superintendent putting, putting students in wagons rather than integrating schools. Uh, you had moving with students to uh, include African-American teachers in those facilities. And you can see the same language, the same rhetoric that you hear today from my state, for those on the right, to be quite frank about it, um, who are resisting uh, these kinds of inclusive, inclusion and equitable um, teaching resources. Um, and, and, and you can see some of the same languages and experiences taking place from those uh, students who are advocating, especially amongst the LGBTQ community and others, to be included in these conversations. So for African-Americans, this is not a new phenomenon. Um, our entire um, existence, unfortunately, has uh, a trace of struggle to it in this country, whether it's voting, whether it's education, whether it's just the right to learn about yourself, to learn about your place in history and, and participation and inclusion in American society as a citizen. Um, these are not new phenomena. So unfortunately, um, once this issue is resolved, when it is, I can guarantee in the next decade or two or three, we will revisit the same thing again. And I often tell these these parents and others at these school board meetings who feel that they don't want their students to feel guilty about learning about what they think are uh, issues and experiences of African-Americans that make, make them feel bad. That that's one selfish way of thinking about it. What about African-Americans who actually experienced those, those horrendous, atrocious acts, uh, we still face those kinds of traumas in their everyday lives. You don't care about how they feel. And so it's not about making people feel um, less than or emotional or sad or guilty about anything. It's about addressing the past. If we address it now, we won't have to uh, have these kind of critical conversations 50 years later. But the problem is we had resistance to these kinds of teachings 50 years ago and, and throughout that time. And we're having the same thing now. So we haven't gotten to the root of these problems. And most of them are structural. Most of them are institutional. Most of them are designed by folks on the school boards, especially in communities like mine. And I'm particularly talking about the South South Chicago and others where you have folks foreign to your community deciding what how decisions are made for your community, particularly when we talk about school boards and so forth. And now we're beginning to see a, a little bit more inclusion, a little bit more, a little bit more equity. We're not quite there yet. And you see the forces of, of those who um, have various, be quite frank about it, white supremacist ideological views who put a form of resistance up to stop those kinds of progressions. And so um, as one who uh, has spoken egregiously and exclusively about these, the subject across the country at various national and local levels, uh, students do not have a problem learning the history. Um, they, they, are, they are open-minded and we owe it to them. We owe the, we owe the a respect to students and to the youth to teach them the truth, not to romanticize it, not to sugarcoat it, but they can handle hard histories. It's the parents that have a problem with it. And most of the parents have this problem because of these political polarized issues that we deal with today. But students are open and they want to learn. And most of them come to my classes upset very angry, white, it's conservative, rural, and whoever those on the right may identify themselves, their children come to our classes at IU very angry that they didn't learn these things in high school when they should have learned it because of various reasons and resources. But now we're starting to see laws and policies passed to, to prevent these kinds of inclusionary histories. And so we, we, we are very disrespectful to the youth and very disrespectful to students if we don't teach the actual truth and, and the hard truths of the past. This is not taking a judgment, but we have to be objective and we have to be balanced in the way in which you do things to use their language. And the one way of doing that is including all stories. So there's two bottom, two ways of teaching history. There's a top-down approach and a bottom-up approach. And what we do in Black Studies is very much a bottom-up approach. The top-down approach is traditional way. When you talk about big big if events, big issues, big people, overwhelmingly white and overwhelmingly male, the exclusionary of women and other minorities and immigrants and other experiences as well. So we must include them as well. I think I'll stop here because I, I, we may be running out of time and I feel like I'm on my soapbox. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, maybe, but I think uh, it's a good place for you to be. We've got about three minutes to go. And, uh, and I want to follow up um, on that and say, how do we, how do we continue this discussion past black history month? I mean, every, every year we have black history month. And I think this is probably a question we ask every year, you know, why just one month? Gloria says at the Neil Marshall center, it's 365 days, you know, 24, seven, 365 days. But it, it does, again, it seems like a pivotal time in our history. We've had, you know, the New York Times piece on, on 1619. Uh, we've had George Floyd. We have a lot more discussion, it seems, these days about institutional racism as opposed to certain things that happened in our history, you know, as a one-off or whatever. Um, how, do you, how do we continue this conversation? We only have about two minutes to go. I guess, Gloria, I'm going to ask you that first. Yeah, I I think we have to keep, um, you know, doing a lot of, I think we're doing some good things, um, but we, we have to, how do I put it? Um, it can't just be the same people singing the same song. Um, and it can't just be like, you know, like I tell my students, I, I teach um, freshman students and it's, it's a very you know, racially and ethnically diverse class. And I tell them um, a lot of the changes that we need to make are not going to be solved just by you taking a course about Black people or, you know, you having one, a one-off conversation with somebody. Um, just like Rama mentioned, like the questions that she gets around Black History Month, I get the most requests to, to speak for things and to, to, inter- to be interviewed. I had a student... Um, that reached out and said, can I talk to you about what it's like to be Black? And I'm not going to say what my response was, but, um, but you know, we get some of the most interesting requests and, and it's not the requests themselves, it's just how they're, it's, it's how they're articulated. But I tell my students, you know, a lot of the people who are not wanting to hear these things, like Jacoby mentioned the parents, it's people who have who are not willing to be exposed and they don't want to learn, they don't want to unlearn. A lot of these conversations are happening not on campus. They need to be happening around the dinner table with your racist family. Um, You know, they need to be happening, you know, when when we're sitting around at the table for Sunday dinner after church. You know, we need to call out some of this you know, a lot of this behavior that we see. And a lot of times it's difficult to do that when it's somebody that, that it's close, that we're close to, or somebody that, um, you know, we didn't think had those types of ideas. So I think a lot of these things are just calling people out to, to call them, to bring them in. And if they don't want to come in, well, that's just them. But, um, you know, we have to start widening and spreading, like kind of, kind of casting a wider net with who we're having these conversations with. All right. That's the first step. All right. That's great. I, that's a good place to end our show today. We are out of time. That was uh, Gloria Howell, director of the IU Neil Marshall Center. Thank you also to Elizabeth Mitchell, Jacoby Williams, and Rama Sumare. Uh, for Sarah Whitmire, my co-host, for Benta Boutier and Holden Abshire, our producers, and for John Bailey, our engineer, I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Integrity First Insurance, provider of Erie Insurance for all your auto, home, life, and business insurance needs. More information at 812-269-8897 or integrityfirstinsuranceservices.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's